0: Let's now open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Our passage today is verses 5 to 10, but we will start from the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, to understand the context and the comparison that is made here. Hebrews 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices, for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself, so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture, and we thank you that Christ is portrayed here. Christ is clearly explained as superior. And we pray that we will understand him and the ministry that he undertook on our behalf for our redemption. Grant us insight into this, but strengthen our faith and help us to please you and glorify you with all things. In Christ's name, Amen. In this passage, the first part of it, verses 1 to 4, describe the priesthood of Aaron. Aaron and the line of priests that came from his family and from uh, from his lineage. That's the line of Aaron. But in verses 5 to 10, our passage, we have Christ explained and Christ superior to Aaron and Aaron's line. The priesthood of the Old Testament was temporary, it was symbolic, and it had a place in order to teach the nation of Israel to look forward to anticipate the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah. Now that Messiah has come, Messiah is explained, the Christ is explained here in verses five to 10 as to who he is and how much better he is than Aaron and anything that Aaron was and anything that people might invest in Aaron as a man, as a person and his lineage and the priesthood that came from him. Christ who is the son of God and Christ who is perfect, sinless and Christ who paid the penalty for the sins of all who believe in him. He is the one who is superior to Aaron. That is who is described in our verse or in our passage here in verses 5 to 10. We saw before who Aaron was and what that was. Now we will see who Christ is. Christ is our perfect high priest whereas Aaron was an imperfect high priest. This means we need to put our hope in Christ. Not in any man, not in anything, even if it is God-ordained, such as ministers of the gospel, missionaries, evangelists, whoever they are, it doesn't matter who they are. Just as Aaron is nothing compared to Christ, so we also, whoever we are, are nothing compared to Christ. Our only hope should be in Christ. Furthermore, this passage, verses 5 to 10, will explain Christ's passive obedience. That is the focal point of it. But implied in a couple of places is his active obedience. It is known, Christ being perfect and sinless, it is known in two major categories. His active obedience is what he did day by day, what he did with his mouth, what he did with his heart, what he did with his eyes, how he conducted himself whenever situations arose, whenever temptations arose. Day by day, he did not sin, actively, He was doing the will of God and resisted sin. Then passive obedience, the passive obedience of Christ, is Christ being willing to be afflicted by the persecutions he endured leading up to the cross and at the cross. What he endured at the cross was inflicted upon him and he withstood it all. He did not fight back. He did not retaliate. He suffered because it was necessary for him to suffer passively on the cross to pay for our sins. So his whole life was perfect, his death was perfect, and all of that perfection was needed for our salvation. Let's see how he explains. Verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Aaron did not appoint himself as high priest. God called him to be high priest, and that was good and right. That is the humble way for it to happen. In the same way, Christ was humble, but his humility, he says, so also Christ did not glorify himself. He did not usurp authority. Christ waited, and he knew that it was appointed for God the Father to install him, appoint him, place him in this role of being the great high priest, the perfect high priest. That's why he says in verse 5, but he who said to him, that is, God the Father said to the Son, his Son, the Father said to the Son, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. This is the first argument, he says. This is how we know that God the Father appointed the Son, and the Son did not appoint Himself and glorify Himself, because the Father said, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. This is a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. That psalm as well is a Messianic psalm, Christological psalm. It describes the person and work of Christ in that passage. And in this verse in particular, the Father is identifying Christ as His Son, my Son. You may recall earlier in in Hebrews 1, verse 5, this psalm was quoted, You are my Son, today I have begotten you, from chapter 1, verse 5. He quotes it again here, in order to reiterate the special relationship that the Son has to the Father, and the Father has to the Son. Note here, the Father did not say of Christ, you are uh, one of my sons. You are among many sons. He did not say anything like that because in the unique sense, there is a relationship between the Father and the Son. And this relationship is based on the fact that they, the two of them have a divine nature. They both possess deity, 100% deity, And this unique relationship exists because of that. We are called sons or adopted into the family of God or children adopted into the family of God. We are called that because of adoption. God adopts us into the family of God. We do not adopt God. God adopts us. So therefore we are called sons or children in that way. But not the Son of God, the unique Son of God, the one and only Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, not him. He is uniquely called My Son. So this was a designation of God assigning to Christ a role with that title, with that uh, degree in place in order for us to understand this unique person who is our Savior. Furthermore, today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you according to Acts 13, Thirty-three, The Apostle Paul is preaching the gospel in one of the synagogues. And while he's preaching, he quotes this psalm also, Psalm 2. And he says this in Acts 13, 33. He says, God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Today, I have begotten you is the prophecy of the resurrection of Christ. That's according to the apostle Paul in Acts 13:33. Not that the father in heaven has a body and he has a goddess wife and begets children. That does not happen. God is not like that because John 4:24 says God is spirit. Hebrews 11:27 says that Moses was seeing him who is unseen. God is unseen or invisible. He is spirit. So, there's nothing like that happening. When God says, today I have begotten you, he's referring to the fact that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. His unique son, with the role that he uh, had, the identity he had and the role he had to die and to rise from the dead, he is uniquely qualified to be the example all of us, and not only the example, but the Savior, the mediator, the intercessor for all of us, by virtue of the fact that he w- rose from the dead. This is also why it says in Romans 1, to 1-4, that he is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He literally, factually, in our history, rose from the dead. Today I have begotten you is a prophecy of that, and how he quotes it as a fulfillment, that Jesus, because of his identity and because of his role, is the best superior, the unique high priest, superior to anyone or anything else. Furthermore, verse 6, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This also shows the appointment of God or the call of God to identify Christ here specifically as our priest. He is our priest. It is the Father in Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4. It is the Father saying to the Son, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So, the Father called Christ to be a priest. There, too, shows the humility of Christ and the appointment of God the Father. God ordained him to be priest. Not only a priest, but a priest forever. The one individual will be a priest forever. Aaron could not be a priest forever. He lived his life, and then he died. That's why it was necessary that among his sons there would be appointments of priesthood from them to succeed him until the coming of Christ. From the time of Aaron and Moses to the time of Christ. It was necessary for that to continue. That shows the, the temporary nature, the transient nature of that priesthood that Aaron and his sons could never in any way save us from sin. They could not. That's why the Father says to the Son, you are a priest forever. So Christ is a priest forever, and being a priest forever, He alone retains and holds that priesthood. No one else has this Melchizedekian priesthood. Only He has it, and there's no necessity for Him to transfer it to anybody else, like Aaron had to his sons. Christ holds it forever. By the way we ought to note that just as I alluded to one cult before, um, you are my son, today I have begotten you, that it was a physical resurrection. I was alluding to the Jehovah's Witnesses who denied the physical resurrection. Now we have another cult in verse 6 that is refuted. Christ is a priest forever means that no one else can have his priesthood. It is not a transferable priesthood. Yet, the Mormons, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as they call themselves, the Mormons say that men, young men, after they have the Aaronic priesthood in their youth, when they are children, at a certain age, and that this is often happening when they become missionaries, when they become 18, 19, 20 years old, and they become missionaries, and do a couple of years of missionary work, at that point they are installed into the Melchizedekian priesthood, they say. They say those missionaries, those 20-year-olds that knock on our doors, they claim that they hold the priesthood of Melchizedek. Yet, that's false and contrary. And actually, that's blasphemy because only Christ possesses it and anyone who wants to usurp that kind of glory and priesthood is blaspheming God and contradicting Christ. This passage says, Jesus holds it forever. Further, this is according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, who was this Melchizedek? Who was this Melchizedek? We can read about him. He's explained in chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. Who is this Melchizedek, and what is the significance of him that Jesus Christ has this priesthood? Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. The word Salem or Salem means peace. And we also know the word shalom. That's another form of this same Hebrew word for peace. Verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Perpetually. That's forever. He has this priesthood. Verse 4. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those, indeed, of the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. His, His point is, Abraham was a great man because God gave the promises to Abraham, so Abraham is showing his submission to Melchizedek. So who is Melchizedek that Abraham would submit to him? Abraham gives a a tenth of his tithes to him, and then Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And he says, verse 7, But without any dispute, the lesser, that's Abraham, is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Levi was one of the sons of Jacob Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was one of the sons of Jacob. And then in the family of Levi, among his descendants, one of them, Aaron, Aaron was chosen later to be the first high priest. So at that point, He's saying that even though these men did not exist yet, they were inferior, lesser than Abraham, and Abraham represented all of the faithful, and he is lesser than Melchizedek. So who is Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek was, I think the best interpretation would be that Melchizedek was a a pre-incarnate, appearance of Christ, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. There are other views and other interpretations of it, but I think that is the best. And this pre-incarnate, temporary appearance of Christ to Abraham, Abraham recognized and knew who he was, he submitted to Melchizedek. So, this was intended so that in the future, when Christ came into the world, he would not obtain the priesthood of Aaron because he's not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. That's not a priestly tribe. So if Jesus is going to be a high priest and a perfect high priest, the greatest high priest, he has to be according to the order of Melchizedek (coughs) because God said in Psalm 110 verse 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, when Jesus comes into the world, he does not possess the inferior, lesser priesthood of Aaron, but the superior, eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. That means that always God intended for our salvation to rest on Christ. Not on an animal, not on Aaron, not on any other person, but on Christ. Only Christ. Christ Signified that, and then he fulfilled it. He signified it in the time of Abraham, and then he fulfilled it 2,000 years ago, in the time of the apostles. Furthermore, Hebrews 5, verse 7. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. In the days of his flesh. This means his flesh means when he had his earthly life. Days of the flesh, days of his flesh, is not talking about anything sinful, not talking about anything sinful in him. It's simply meaning the days when he literally had flesh and bones and lived an earthly life. He did so for 33 and a half years. That's what the days of his flesh means. It's important to understand that because there are people who think that Jesus was a phantom. Jesus was a spirit or a ghost. He was not a real, tangible, physical person. He did not have flesh and bones. But that is refuted here as the explicit statement is in the days of his flesh. Or John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or in first John chapter one, what our eyes see uh, have seen and our and our hands handled the word of life. Their eyes, the eyes the apostles actually saw him as real, and their hands actually handled him, touched him, such as when they worshiped him. And this is worship him at his feet, that they actually touched him, they knew that he was a real person not a figment, not a phantom, nothing like that. And that's important because if he does not have a human nature, if he's not flesh and bones like us, how can he represent us? And how can he die in our place? This was necessary. This is further explained as he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. He was faithfully through his prayers and supplications, depending on God. He did not come, as he said, I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is what he came to do, and he prayerfully carried out God's will. This is clear of him throughout his ministry. We often see him praying and depending upon the Father in many ways, and especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the last few hours of his life, before he was arrested by the mob, led by Judas Iscariot, before that happened, he was praying in the garden and praying because he was about to suffer the penalty that we deserve. He was about to do so. But he did it with prayerful, humble, complete dependence on God, even though he could have easily given it up. He could have done so. He could have in a theoretical way. Of course, according to the eternal plan of God, it would never have happened. But in a theoretical way, of course. He's suffering intense persecution. Intense uh, burden of our sins are being placed on him. And he yet did not give up, but pursued prayers and supplications. This is the way that he perfectly did so. Aaron, when he was tempted... Did Aaron do that? Remember we said in Exodus 32, when Aaron was tempted, he did not submit his temptation to prayers and supplications, right? What did he do? When the people were anxious that Moses was away on the mountain, they came to Aaron and said, where is this Moses? We don't know where he is. And make us a God of gold that we may worship it. So Aaron says, okay, let's do that. And they make a God of gold. They worship it. They celebrate. They have a feast. They dance. They play. They this is the kind of thing that happened. Aaron did not submit every temptation to prayers and supplications, yet Jesus did. Not only that, but he did it with loud crying and tears. Loud crying and tears. We know that at certain points, the Bible says that he cried out or he shouted out, such as in Luke twenty-three, twenty-three forty-six, and Jesus, while he's on the cross, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus suffered so much that he had to say it aloud and say it very loudly with a loud voice, the kind of anguish he was experiencing through his paying the penalty for our sins with crying and with tears but he did not go to a futile source he did not go to a vain place to find deliverance to find sustenance to find help he went to the one able to save him from death he went to the one able to save him from death that should remind us of chapter 4 chapter 4 verse 15 for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness Weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. There, he perfectly modeled the fact that we ought to go to God the Father. Don't go to the world, don't go to the devil, don't go to the flesh, don't go to anyone here, go first and foremost to God himself. God the Father, whenever we're under temptation. Because Jesus did so, and he perfectly modeled that for us. He went to the one able to save him from death. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 this is the promise that we have modeled here perfectly in Christ. Further it says, and he was heard because of his piety. He was heard because of his piety. God heard him literally, but his meaning here, God heard him effectually. Of course God hears everything and knows everything that's happening. There's no surprise to him. The apostle when he says he was heard, means God the Father heard him effectually. God definitely was going to carry out his will in the life of Christ and all those who are joined to Christ. He was heard. The prayer was to be answered because it was Christ offering the prayer. It also says because of his piety. His piety, his godliness, because of his godliness or holiness, Jesus had this, and this is why God was pleased, well-pleased, to answer his prayer. This is why he was well-pleased to answer it. This reminds us of Psalm sixty-six eighteen in reference to ourselves. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Or, 1 Peter 3, 7... You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with the weaker vessels, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. If we have this kind of of mistreatment of the wives, as it's in 1 Peter 3, 7, and we're not dealing with them properly, then our prayers... May be hindered, he says. So that your prayers may not be hindered. God will not answer. He will not pay attention. As well, our motives. Our motives in James 4. James 4, 1-4. to He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not your desires which wage war in your members? You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives or evil motives to spend it on your pleasures. So, our motives in asking should be pure and good and right. In the case of Christ, he perfectly showed us because he had perfect piety. He had perfect godliness. There was no sin in him, and therefore God was pleased to answer his prayer. And what was the answer to the prayer? The answer to the prayer involves many things. It says here, that God was able to save him from death. How did God save him from death? He actually did die. So save him from death does not mean that he never died. Contrary to certain false religions, liberal Christianity says Jesus did not die, but swooned, or the disciples stole the body, something of that nature. That's what liberal Christianity says. Islam says Jesus did not die on the cross, And the candidate they hold forth first is Judas Iscariot. They say Judas Iscariot was the one who died on the cross. Jesus did not die on the cross. Yet, we do know factually from many testimonies in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah the prophet predicts it, so forth, that Jesus actually did, in time and space, in history, die on the cross. He was a real person who died literally, So when it says to save him from death, he means raise him up on the third day. Raise him up on the third day and all of the implications and consequences of what he did when he rose up on the third day. When he rose up on the third day, he was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. When he rose up on the third day, he was the first fruits or the firstborn from the dead as a forerunner and a model for us just as he was raised from the dead with an immortal body, a glorified body no more susceptible to pain sorrow, death anymore, that is the way we will be one day because we believe in him because I live, you shall live also he said, John 14, 19 I am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me shall live even if he dies and he who lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this? And of course, Martha said yes. And so this is is the resurrection that he's meaning here. He's implying the resurrection. That the Father was able to save him from death, that is three days later, raise him up from the dead. Further, to buttress our argument here, Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, verse 20, proves that the apostle within the same letter believes in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There, the apostle definitely implied the resurrection in chapter 5, but explicitly mentions the resurrection in 13 verse 20. He believed in the death and resurrection because it says, brought up from the dead, Jesus our Lord. And tying his resurrection to ours is Hebrews 11.35. Hebrews 11.35 says, this is the line of faithful men and women, and in 35 it says, women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. They understood that there was to be a better resurrection and they were looking to Christ for that. Christ was the forerunner and the firstborn from the dead. Now returning to Hebrews 5 and verse 8. 5.8 Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Although he was a son, and by this he means he, he is and was the son of God, the only begotten, the unique, one and only son of God. Although he was that, perfect deity in perfect humanity, perfect deity plus perfect humanity, although he was that, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He did not deserve to suffer. There was no need for him to suffer. Suffering happens because evil happens. Evil happens because sin happens. Right? Sin produces Sin and evil, they produce death and suffering. All of the things associated with the approach of death in our life. Suffering is there because there is sin and evil in the world. But Jesus was perfect, so he should not have suffered at all. So why did he suffer? We'll see in a moment why he suffered. But firstly, he's asserting here that it was necessary for him to suffer he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He learned obedience means he experienced obedience. He experienced perfectly day by day from, for all of his life, from, for the 33 and a half years, day by day he experienced learning obedience. One circumstance after another. Sometimes he was hungry. Sometimes he was thirsty. Sometimes he was tired. Sometimes there was a crowd and he needed to be alone and to pray to the Father. Other things happened, right? The temptations of Satan happened in Matthew 4. So Jesus experienced this kind of suffering and temptation. And each experience was a further test and a further way that he learned obedience. Now, he did not learn for his own benefit. He learned for our benefit from the things which he suffered. And for our benefit partly this is so that we might know that if he was perfect and yet suffered then why should we complain since we are imperfect? Why should we complain about our circumstances, our anxieties, our temptations? Why should we complain? Who who is has a legitimate ground to complain against God. Remember Job. Job, at first he was doing well in chapters 1 and 2, but afterwards when he began his dialogue with his friends, during that time he began, began to wonder and to say, God, you answer me, tell me. Why is this happening? I need to know. I want to know. You should tell me. And on and on. And God had to tell him, confront him for several chapters at the end of the book. Who are you? Now you stand up like a man and let me ask you, gird up your loins like a man and let me ask you all the questions. You've been asking questions about me, now let me ask you questions. And Job had to realize by the end of it, I repent and I recant in dust and ashes. I, sh- I have uh, said things that were too wonderful for me, things that I should not have said at all. He confessed that, he had to open his mouth. Therefore, when he learned obedience, he did it for us, not only to be a perfect sacrifice for us, but to teach us to humbly live our life before God, humbly, prayerfully live our life before God, because we are sinners and imperfect. Further, verse 9, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Verse 8 and the first part of verse 9 go together. He learned obedience and having been made perfect, he was made perfect in that he became a perfect sacrifice, demonstrated throughout his life. His active obedience, from his childhood into his adulthood, he never sinned. No matter what happened all around him, he never sinned in thought, word, or deed. That's his active obedience. Then passively, on the cross, he suffered for our sin. Not for his sins, because he was perfect. He obeyed until the very end, until he said, Father, into your hand, I commit my spirit and breathe his last. Until that time, he did everything perfectly. So he was made perfect in that way. He went through all of those experiences in order to be the fitting Replacement for us. The fitting sacrifice for us. What we deserve will not be inflicted upon us, but upon Him. If we believe in Him. I said, if we believe in Him, because of verse 9. He became, he became to all those who obey Him, the source of eternal salvation. To all those who obey Him. It's interesting that the Apostle says, to all those who obey Him. Why does he say obey him? Because obedience is characteristic of those who are followers of Christ. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Luke 6, 46. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You who practice lawlessness. Then when does obedience first begin for the Christian? It begins when he hears the gospel and believes it. Because Jesus said in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Those two verbs, repent and believe, are imperatives; They are commands. To obey a command is necessary. That's why he's saying here, to all those who obey him, the source of eternal salvation. If we repent, and if we believe in the gospel, repent of our sins, that means turn away from sin, and believe in the gospel, then there is salvation. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's the way in which we Obey Him for our eternal salvation. We're not talking about a temporary deliverance. We're not talking about being saved from an accident or something like that. We're talking about eternally saved. Eternally saved from our sins because we repent and obey. Uh, Sorry, repent and believe, which are two ways in which we obey. And this is not momentary. People do not, just when they first hear the gospel, repent and believe it. Repentance is something that should continue throughout life. And belief should continue throughout life. The two are together, right? Mark 1.15. Are we supposed to believe the gospel just one time? And then the next day forget it? And, and just reject it? And spite God? And blaspheme God? And live the rest of our life as we wish? No. There's no salvation that way. Belief must remain, and even repentance must remain. That's why he said in Hebrews 3.14, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. Hold fast to all of this confession, firm until the end. So belief continues throughout life, and repentance continues throughout life. And finally, verse 10, he says being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. God is the one who designated him, and here he wraps up in, in a sort of envelope fashion. He started with God appointing him and designating him, and he ends with that fact about Melchizedek. He brings up Melchizedek again because he's about to say that before I can tell you some things about Melchizedek in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, some things about Melchizedek and the implications of that priesthood in the later chapters, I need to admonish you. I need to warn you. I need to kind of chastise you, which he will do in the next paragraph. So he brings up Melchizedek again because he cannot explain some of the details about this priesthood of Melchizedek, until he first warns them and chastises them in the next section. They should know better. They should have already known all of these things about God designating Christ as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So let's believe in all this. Let's put Christ as our focus in all things. No trust in man, if the Aaronic priesthood and Aaron cannot be trusted for our salvation, then we should not trust anybody else either. Only trust Christ for our salvation. Trust Christ and only Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Amen.